The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. The Apostle Paul was the one who laid the foundation of Christ within the city of Corinth. We see that in Acts the 18th chapter. Not everything was was well, but Paul was with them in weakness and fear and in much trembling, as he records in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But the Lord convinced him and encouraged him that he had many people in that city. That is, that there would be many souls that would be receptive to the truth that he would preach. So he preached Christ out of faith, and the church in Corinth was established. In Acts 18 and verse 8, it says, Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And because of this, naturally, because Paul preached the gospel, they heard it and believed it and obeyed it, the Corinthians and Paul had a unique and special relationship. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 14, Paul told them in writing a pretty severe epistle, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And so as Paul had established the church there, he had a very special relationship with them. While they were receiving instruction from others, he was the start of their faith ultimately as he preached the gospel originally to them. And while he dealt with a lot of problems in 1 Corinthians, and a lot of those problems had been resolved to a degree by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians, and some of those are noted, Yet he still had to deal with a lot of problems there in 2 Corinthians, namely dealing with the false teachers who were in their midst. And those false teachers, as they didn't have the truth, had to go through other means to gain the allegiance and the fidelity of the Corinthian brethren, to gain them in their following as they taught a false gospel. And one of the things they did in using weapons of the flesh is they attacked Paul's character They made things up about Paul, but also they pointed out some things in their ignorance that would suggest to them that Paul was not an apostle or that he was weak and that the Corinthians should pay no attention to him. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, then the apostle Paul said, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, anything that we've done, but you are restricted by your own affections. In other words, you are being swayed by these false apostles you are being tricked by them and deceived by them. The problem is on your end, not my end. I have done nothing to deserve this treatment from you. Likewise, in chapter 7 and verse 2, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. In chapter 12 and verse 14, He says, for the third time I am ready to come to you and I will not be burdensome to you for I do not seek yours like the false apostles were doing, but you for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Imagine the pain in those words that the apostle Paul penned. As much as he loved the Corinthians and all the things that he did in teaching the gospel and traveling from place to place and longing for them and having a great concern for all the churches as he penned in the 11th chapter of this epistle, yet as much as he loved them, the less he was loved. 
And as I mentioned, the false opponents of Paul in Corinth, the only thing they could do because they didn't have the truth was attack his character because as he notes in chapter 10, the weapons of his warfare were mighty in God and there was nothing false that could stand against the gospel and remain standing. And so they attacked his character. And among several things that we could point out in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, they attacked his character by suggesting he was dishonest or duplicitous. And one of the ways that they did that was suggested that the plans that he mentioned in 1 Corinthians, the plans of his traveling to them and being with them, he did that with ulterior motives. He was trying to manipulate them and make them think one thing when really he meant another thing. They charged him with duplicity. And in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians and verse 15, the Apostle Paul noted his original travel plans. He said, In this confidence I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? So he had some original plans, and you can read of them in the 16th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. He planned to pass through Macedonia and come to them, and and he wanted to be with them and spend a winter with them, and, and that they could send him on his journey wherever he would go. And he would do this if the Lord permits. But evidently, the Lord did not permit. These plans changed. And it wasn't that he never really intended to come to them in the way that he promised. But plans change. And the false apostles took advantage of this change of plans to try to convince the Corinthians that Paul was just a dishonest man. He's just trying to manipulate you. He's trying to take advantage of you. But notice there in verse 17, Paul said, Did I plan these things lightly? That's a Greek word, alaphria, which means levity or fickleness. He's saying, was I flaky or fickle in planning these things? The New American Standard Bible says, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this. Rather, Paul suggests that he was honest in these plans and he was confident in this. And he boasts in that in chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we were not writing any other things to you than what we read, you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you are ours also in the day of the Lord Jesus." He's simply saying that when we wrote these plans to you, among all the other things, we didn't mean anything than what you read about them. There was no hidden meaning to them. There's no mystery to them. I wrote plainly and clearly in words you could understand. My original plans meant exactly what they say. But plans change. And he appeals to his, his own conscience as a witness. He has confidence in that. He actually calls God as his witness in a little while, in chapter 1. I want us to notice the character he shows that he has, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. That's the opposite of duplicity. That translation into simplicity is from the Greek word hablotis, and it means singleness or sincerity without dissimulation or self-seeking, Strong defines it as. 
And I want us to harp on that definition, singleness. Paul was not double-sided in his planning. He was certainly not duplicitous, but he was single in his planning. And so he defended his character. In verse 17, he continues, Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes. And in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as my witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers of your joy, for by faith you stand. And so he really was doing this, and his plans changed for actually the benefit of the Corinthians. But I especially want us to know that as he defends himself and shows he's not duplicitous, he does that by calling God as witness. And in verse 18, he says, as God is faithful. And that's what I want us to focus on. And so what Paul was doing is appealing to God's faithfulness and was suggesting that just like God is faithful and his word is true, my words were true when I sent them to you. But I want us to take this concept there that he points out in verse 17. Did I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? The New American Standard Bible renders it. Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me there should be yes, yes and no, no at the same time? Or as the English Standard Version renders it, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? You see, the greater danger here was not simply that they were rejecting Paul, but in rejecting Paul, an apostle of the Lord, they were rejecting the Lord and His Word. And so if Paul's plans were duplicitous, if he was contradicting himself, saying, yes and no at the same time, then how could they trust in his gospel? But as he appeals to God's faithfulness to show that he himself was faithful, he's also having to deal with the problem of the Corinthians turning to another gospel, which is not actually another, as Galatians points out. He says, God does not say yes and then no, but God is yes, in him is yes. The gospel is single, the gospel is not contradictory. In chapter 11 of this epistle, in verse 3, he says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's the same word as we looked at in chapter 1, and it means singleness. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And so he's saying the gospel is the same. It's single. In other words, one person cannot come and preach this gospel and it be true when another person comes and preaches a different gospel that's conflicting and that be true. Either one is right and the other is wrong or they're both wrong. And Paul is saying that my gospel I preached to you was the truth. Don't turn to another gospel. Don't turn from the singleness or the simplicity that is in Christ. It's not yes and no, it's yes. It's not contradictory. What Paul preached originally is what they needed to hold on to. 
And they needed to turn away from the false apostles and their teaching. And so what we need to understand is a very fundamental principle in God's revelation to man, that God is consistent. His words harmonize together. He cannot say yes and then turn around and say no. He can't speak out of both sides of his mouth. But what he says is true and he never contradicts himself. It seems that the religious world today needs to understand this. What Paul appealed to in defending himself and calling the Corinthians back to Christ and his gospel and away from the false apostles. The world needs to understand that if a doctrine contradicts what we see in Scripture, then that doctrine is false. God does not say yes and no, yes and no at the same time. In Him is yes. There's so many doctrines taught and held and believed as truth. When they're in obvious contradiction to what we plainly and clearly see, simply see a singleness in Scripture. And yet men and women claim to accept them by faith, and they believe them and they hold on to them for dear life when they contradict the God of the universe. God is not yes and no, but in Him is yes. I want us to consider that concept of the singularity of the gospel and the fact that it is the divine standard that we need to appeal to in all things to make sure what we have is indeed the truth. God says yes, not yes and no. We notice that there is only one gospel in Jude, his epistle. He writes to them to tell them to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. That means there's not another gospel that is coming. It has been once for all delivered. Also in Galatians, the first chapter, as I alluded to earlier, we read of the warning of the apostle Paul of anyone else, even himself or an angel from heaven coming to preach a different conflicting gospel. Don't accept it. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what you have, we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. We find here that there is a divine, immutable standard. And once it has been once for all delivered, which that which has perfect has come, 1 Corinthians 13, that is the complete revelation of Christ, then anything that comes after it that is in contradiction to it must be rejected because God does not say yes and no, but in Him is simply and singly yes That same gospel is preserved for us today. We notice in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, that was what the Hebrew writer appealed to. As these people had begun their faith and they came out of Judaism and accepted Christ and they were turning back to it, he tells them in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he means is that there is no way you can be accepted by God in turning back to an old system that has grown obsolete when Christ never included that in his gospel plan in the first place. You accepted Christ in the beginning. You can't start accepting this other faith, this faith that has been nailed to the cross. You can't start accepting a hybrid faith of Jewish and Christian 
principles. The old law and the new law are not married together, but the old law is obsolete and Christ continues today. He doesn't change, in other words. He hasn't changed since you originally accepted him. So why are you turning back to these old ways? And notice what directly follows that statement of truth that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by them. And so if Jesus Christ is the same always, his truth, his doctrine, his way stays the same, then if there's some other doctrines which are strange because they're different from his original doctrine come along, don't be carried about with them. Don't accept them. Don't even hesitate to reject them because they're not true. And so we've got a great responsibility upon our shoulders. If God doesn't say yes and no, he only says yes. And when he says something, he means it. And it settles it if he says that. Then we have the obligation and responsibility to search what we know he said to make sure what is said by others is true. That's exactly what Luke and his inspired account of the beginning of the church in Acts 17 concerning the Bereans, this is exactly what he praises them for, that the Holy Spirit praises them for. The Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. They were noble-minded and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Yes, we need to have a readiness to hear what is being spoken if it is claimed to be truth. But the Bereans didn't give a readiness to hear those things and just accept them at face value. No, they had a perfect standard, an eternal standard they realized was infallible. They could trust in it. And so they took what Paul and Silas were speaking to them and they were ready to accept it if it was truth. But they had the obligation and they realized that to make sure it was truth. So they searched the scriptures they found out it was the truth and many of them believed. Since God does not say one thing and then turn around and say something which contradicts it, we need to follow what is truth and make sure what we are following is truth. We need to let God be true, but every man a liar. And that comes with the encouragement, the exhortation I would give anyone watching tonight to not just accept something because your pastor said it or your mom and dad said it, not just to accept something because your preacher said it or an elder said it or a close friend of yours said it was so, but accept only what God says in his word. It may be that what you're following is the truth, but we've got to be honest and realize in humility that it may be that it isn't truth. We can certainly have a confidence, but that confidence can only come from what we read in the gospel. I would suggest to you that the denominational model and system is saying no when God says yes, or we would just put it simply, they're contradicting what the scriptures teach. And there's so many things we could think about. I want us to consider a few this evening. Consider the denominational model the denominational system, when God says yes and the denominations say no, and if you believe these things, maybe you need to examine yourself and to make sure you're actually following what is 
truth. Search the scriptures like the Bereans. I want to suggest to you that the whole concept of denominationalism is contradicting what the scriptures says. And here's the idea of denominationalism. They'll suggest that we can't all understand the Bible alike. Certainly the Bible is the fountain of truth. It is infallible and it is revealed to us by God for us to come to an understanding of and follow and believe and practice. But because of human imperfection, it's impossible for us to come to an understanding alike of the Bible. And so there may be some who agree together, but there may be some who don't. And denominationalism is accepts the fact of division instead of trying to defeat it with the inspired word, which promotes unity in its pages, and they'll divide. And the people who agree with each other go together, and the people who think something else go with the people who think the same. And, and so while we have differing groups, they are all right regardless of their contradictions. That's the concept of denominationalism. You may believe something slightly different, but we're all okay. We're all accepted of God. I would suggest to you that God says the exact opposite of that in Scripture. What God says is that we absolutely can understand the Scriptures. And not only can we, but we must. Notice what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. In verse 3, he speaks of the role he played as God used him in revealing the gospel to men, that by revelation God made known to him the mystery As I've briefly written already, he says, by which when you read, notice this, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. I think that if we asked anyone within the denominational world who would know better, Paul or them, they would all submit that Paul knows better. The great apostle chosen by the Lord himself and sent to preach the gospel The inspired apostle knows better than we know. But notice what Paul said. He wrote these things so that we read it and we can understand his knowledge in the mystery. In other words, we can come to the same understanding as the great apostle Paul. I would suggest to you that if we understand the Bible at all, we can understand it alike. Because God meant one thing by his words. He never means two different conflicting things by his spoken word, but he's single and it harmonizes. And so if it's understood, then it can only be understood in one way, which means if two people understand it, they're understanding it alike. If they claim to understand it, but their messages they understand are conflicting, then one of them doesn't understand it, or maybe both of them don't. But Paul says we can understand and we can understand it alike. God does not mean multiple things when he says one thing, but he means what he says, and we need to come to an understanding of it. The reality is the gospel does not permit division, but it speaks vehemently against it in every single part of scripture. Notice in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That is entirely exclusive. It leaves no room for agreeing to disagree. It leaves no room for contradicting messages. The whole concept of denominationalism contradicts God's word. 
And with denominationalism, therefore, naturally, comes the divisions and differences in churches. You have the Methodist church, the Baptist church, the Presbyterian church, so on and so forth. We could list them all, but we don't need to. We understand the point. There are more than one church. There are divisions in beliefs and doctrines, and therefore those who agree with each other comprise those different denominations and churches. But what they'll suggest is that they all head up into Christ, that Christ is still in the center of all of those differences. But that would suggest that Christ has several churches. And so the denominations are saying that Christ is actually the head of several churches when the Bible speaks of there only being one church. Notice in Ephesians 1 and verse 22, the apostle Paul said that God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 4 and verse 4, in the list of ones is the one body and the one Lord, which is head of that one body. That body is the church of Ephesians 1 in verse 22 and 23. And that body is identified as only being one there in chapter 4 and verse 4. These are simple truths that are just being dismissed by those in the world. And we cannot dismiss them. God does not say something just so that we can take it or leave it. God says something so that we know the truth because he's going to judge us by the truth and he's giving us plenty of time and clarity to get on the right side of truth so that when judgment day comes, we will be found right with him. We'll be in the right group, the right body, the correct church, the one church. When he said there's one body, he did not mean that there's several churches. He meant there's one. In Matthew, the 16th chapter in verse 18, we know this, the singularity of that church that Christ promised to build. He said, I say to you that you are Peter after Peter made his confession. And on this rock, that is his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I will build my church single. I would suggest to you that Jesus is wise enough and the Holy Spirit is clear enough in revealing God's hidden will, making it known to us to where he would have understood the importance and gravity of the difference between a plural noun and a singular noun. There's a reason why Jesus said, I will build my church and not my churches. If he wanted several, he would have absolutely said churches. Christ only purchased one church. And this is why this is important. If you want to partake of the blood of Christ, if you want to be in the ownership of Christ, you've got to be a part of his church, but there's only one. And so if you believe there's several different churches, then it's quite obvious that you're not a part of the one true church. In Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul said to the Ephesian elders to take Heed to yourselves into the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church, singular, of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Did you know that only one church was purchased with the blood of Christ? Well, how much more important then is it that we identify that one church, make sure we're a part of that one church? And it's not the church that's saying there are several churches that belong to God, but it is the church that is submitting to the fact 
that the Holy Scripture speaks of only one body of Christ. And with this understanding of there being more than one church, there are more than one name. We see that within the denominational realm. If there are different groups that believe different things and therefore make up different distinct churches, then they think that it is necessary to show that distinctiveness by the name which they wear. And so you have the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, the assemblies of God, all of those different kinds of of denominations out there that we could name off. And then you have some who are bringing out their even more specific and different and unique and peculiar names to them and them alone. Some things that aren't even seen in the Holy Scripture. We can drive down the road there in El Reno and see several different signs of churches which you can't even find the names of in the New Testament. I want to suggest to you, though, that there's a lot in a name. There's a reason why they give themselves those names, to to distinguish themselves from others. They are not this church over here that wears the name A. They are this church over here which wears the name B. And the reason they wear those names is to be separate from those other churches. We are not them and they are not us. And there's a lot in a name. But I would suggest to you that those names do not bring glory to God. They're actually intended to bring attention and glory to that particular group which bears that name. If they were wanting to bring glory to God, they would wear a name that was given by God within the pages of His holy book. We need to find names that God has given and not settle with any that we have come up with. Only those who appeal to Scripture and what God desires are those who belong to the Lord. The Lord doesn't speak of many different names, but those which all show His church belongs to Him. Notice in Isaiah 62 in verse 1, the prophecy that for Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. I think we see the fulfillment of this in Acts the 11th chapter. Notice there that Jerusalem would have their righteousness go forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. In other words, the fulfillment of messianic prophecy and salvation would come to Jerusalem, finally. And then the Gentiles would see the righteousness of God and kings their glory. And after the Gentiles would be partakers of the righteousness of God and have fellowship with Him in that regard, that's when they would be called by a new name. In Acts the 11th chapter, the context is directly after the fulfillment of the Gentiles seeing the righteousness of God when the household of Cornelius was preached the gospel and they were baptized in Christ for the remission of their sins. And the gospel spread throughout Antioch. And there in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, it says it was for a whole year that they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Christian simply means 
followers, disciples of Christ. That's the name that God gave his people. Individually, they are Christians and collectively they are the church which belongs to Christ or as Romans 16, 16 says, the churches of Christ greet you. I want to suggest to you that to be called by another name does not bring glory to God or Christ, but it brings glory to that person, that entity, that group, that institution. This is why the Apostle Paul was so taken aback when he learned that some were calling themselves as those who were of Paul or of Apollos or of Cephas. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul's saying, I didn't do anything for you. You're not to be called after my name. It was Christ who purchased you. It was Christ who died for you. There's much in a name. And the name that has been given to God's people is the name Christian, collectively, those who are churches or the church of Christ. With this concept of denominationalism, different beliefs and therefore different churches and different names suggest multiple ways to heaven. And again, God is saying one thing and the denominations are saying something that is completely opposite and contradictory to it. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Using the definite article three times to show that it is completely exclusive. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life, and it is Jesus. What the denominations will suggest is that all of their differences are still in Christ, even though we're saying different things and the gospel actually says it doesn't contradict itself. It only says one thing. We're still all in Christ. Essentially, denominationalism says that we can go different directions. We can follow a different message. We can make different applications of reading the same verses and all end up in the same Place. There's multiple ways of heaven. To heaven is what the denominations suggest. God doesn't say anything like that. He says much to the opposite. In Matthew, the seventh chapter and verse 13, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. There are two ways, but only one leads to heaven. And it's described as narrow and difficult. It is the way of the word of Christ. As Jesus said, I am the way. In other words, if you can't find it written in the pages of the Holy Scripture, then it's not right. There's only one way to heaven. Interestingly enough, however, the concept of denominationalism as different as it can, may be from church to church, essentially they all believe in this concept of salvation by faith only. They'll be unified in this concept of salvation being solely through faith. But it's very interesting, at least to me, that the one thing that most of the denominations tend to agree on is actually 
one of the easiest things to show is false by lining it up against Scripture. It falls flat on its face. It has no leg to stand on. They'll say we don't do anything for our salvation and contradict themselves in the same breath by saying except believe. You know, belief is something we do. But salvation is not by faith only. We do have to do something. God says you've got to do something to be saved. The denominations claiming to follow God say, wait a second, no you don't. They'd be arguing with Jesus if they lived in the first century. Isn't that something? Notice in John 6 and verse 28, there were some who came to Jesus and said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? I would suggest to you that if one of us walked up to someone, perhaps a a pastor in a denominational church or just an individual on the street who claimed to be a believer in Christ and was a member of a community church or denomination of some sort, and we asked them that very question, what shall we do that we may work the works of God, they would probably suggest that don't you know you can't do anything? Don't you know that God does all the work? Don't you know that there's nothing we can do? We are inherently and totally depraved. We're just rotten to the core and we need God to do everything. Yet Jesus answered something different. He didn't rebuke them for this idea they had in their mind that, yeah, we've got to do something to be pleasing to God. He agreed with that. That was an understanding during this time that, yes, God calls us to do certain things. They just wanted to know what. This is what Jesus said. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And isn't that interesting? That this idea of no works whatsoever salvation, but only faith contradicts the very concept of faith that Jesus just showed us in Scripture that faith in and of itself is a work. It's something we do. Isn't it something that takes effort? Isn't it something that's up to us? It is certainly a work. We must do something to be saved. Likewise, in Acts the second chapter in verse 37, after Peter's sermon, the people heard this. They were cut to the heart and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They knew they had to do something. In the 16th chapter of Acts, when the Philippian jailer realized that these men were followers of God and that they hadn't fled from the prison, he ran in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He knew he needed to do something. And they didn't rebuke him. They gave him an answer. Or as James 2 verse 24 clearly says, this is God speaking and we need not contradict him. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Along with this, those who believe salvation by faith only will assert with utmost confidence and no hesitation whatsoever that baptism is is not for salvation. Baptism, they say, is an outward sign of an inward grace. In other words, it's showing something that has already happened in the past. It's an outward representative washing of what has inwardly occurred already by the blood of Jesus according to faith. And with that, they would suggest to you that baptism is not essential to salvation that if one is not baptized, he won't be lost, that he'll be saved still. 
because salvation is simply by faith. You see, they're saying one thing that I would suggest to you with utmost confidence contradicts what Jesus himself said and what he revealed in his word through the inspired New Testament. Mark 16 and verse 16, Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus just tells us there that baptism is essential to salvation. Remember in Acts the second chapter in verse 37 when they said, What shall we do? Peter did not rebuke them and say, You fools, don't you know you can't do anything? He said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Yes, you must do something and you can do something. Repent and be baptized. I want us to notice the language there that baptism is not just essential to salvation but it is so intimately tied to salvation that it directly allows access to the very blood of the Son of God, which all would agree without any doubt at all is necessary to be saved. It says that you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, some would tell you falsely that that word for means because of the remission of sins. Your sins were already forgiven and you are being baptized to show that. But that Greek word never means because of. It's the Greek word eyes, which means in order to or to, into. It's a preposition of direction. You have not had the remission of sins. You are baptized into the remission of sins. You know, it's the same Greek word that is used in the formula of Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, speaking of the fruit of the vine, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. In Acts 2, 38, Peter said baptism is for the remission of sins. And Jesus rightly said himself that his blood is for the remission of sins. Now, if Acts 2.38 means that we're baptized because our sins were forgiven or because of remission of sins, then it has to be true that Jesus is saying He shed His blood because our sins were forgiven. They were already forgiven and that's why He shed His blood. But how foolish is that? How contradictory to the message of the cross is that? The whole reason He appeared in the flesh to die on the cross was for sin to wash away sins, to pay the price by His blood for our sins. He shed His blood so that sins could be forgiven. And we are baptized so that sins could be forgiven. And we compare those two things together. And as a simple mathematic equation, we understand that one thing or two different things that are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So it is here. If... Jesus' blood gets us to the remission of sins or Jesus' blood is for the remission of sins and baptism is for the remission of sins. Then we reach Jesus' blood and baptism. Or as very simply Peter puts by inspiration in 1 Peter 3.21, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Baptism saves us. And you know, lastly... After this concept of salvation, 
The denominations will contradict something God says when they suggest that you cannot fall away. Once you've gained your salvation, you are always saved. Apostasy is impossible. Whereas we simply refer to it as once saved, always saved. You know, if that's true, then once you've believed in Jesus and have been saved, there is no reason whatsoever to ever pick up a Bible again, to ever pray to God, to ever go to church, to ever abstain from any fleshly lust, to ever do any kind thing to any soul. We don't need to do anything anymore. We can live it up. We can do whatever we want. If we have a fleshly desire, we should go after it and pursue it because we only have the time on this earth to fulfill those fleshly desires. If we're once saved, always saved, then what are we doing? The logical consequence to that doctrine is a world of iniquity and immorality. And that's certainly not what God intends for us to be as his people. There certainly is the possibility of apostasy and the scripture is so chock full of examples and warnings of falling from salvation. In 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter in verse 12, the apostle Paul warned the Corinthians after giving the example of the Israelites who were baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea. In other words, they were delivered. They were They were given a salvation, and yet with most of them, God was not well pleased. They were scattered in the wilderness. Their bodies were in the wilderness. They died. They did not reach the promised land. And he gave that example to show that once you're saved, you're not always saved. You've got to endure. And he warns them in verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Why would he say that except for the reason that falling is possible. In Galatians 5 and verse 4, Paul said, you have become estranged from Christ, which implies you were once with Christ and now you are estranged from Christ. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Someone will say, well, if that's the case, they were never saved in the first place. Well, then Paul is a liar because he says, Once, by implication, they were together with Christ. Once, by implication, they had God's grace. But now they are estranged from Him and they have fallen from grace. Can you fall away? Certainly. That's why the Hebrew writer warned in Hebrews 12 and verse 15, he told them to look carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. What's the need for any kind of self-examination or walking circumspectly, as Ephesians chapter 5 says, and understanding what the will of the Lord is. What's the purpose of that if you cannot fall from your salvation? He says, look carefully, because you can fall, and you will fall if you aren't careful. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 14, Peter encourages, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, that is, the coming of the day of the Lord, which all these elements will be melted with fervent heat and the new heavens and the new earth are the only thing that remain. He says, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. In other words, it matters how we're found 
at the coming of the Lord? Do we have sin in our lives? Are we not right with God? Are we amiss in some way or fashion? Are we blameless? He says, make sure you're blameless because if you're not, the end does not bode well for you. Certainly we can fall short and so we need to make sure that we're always growing in faith. You know, we could list so many other things which we see as contradictions to the gospel in the world. These are only a few. I want to encourage you to be like the Bereans of Acts 17 and verse 11. To search the scriptures daily. It is our daily bread. To find out what the truth is. To find out whether the things that you're being taught are are so, are true. The gospel will show you whether they're true or not. And if you see a contradiction, always reject that which stands opposite of God's word. Don't let any of your affections get in your way. You know, going back to 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul there in chapter 6 and verse 11 and 12 said, You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. There was something that was keeping them from the relationship they had with Paul and keeping them from following the gospel. And it wasn't any problem on Paul's part, but it was their own affections. They were holding on to a relationship. They were holding on to a situation and an idea and a doctrine that was simply not true. Don't let your relationships, don't let what you've always been taught, what you always thought was right, affect you from following what you now know is right. Find out what the truth is. Because when God says something, He doesn't mean something hidden in saying that. He's revealed to us the mystery. It's no longer a mystery. He's told us exactly what His will is and how to be saved and how to be His child and how to be ready for the judgment day. And when He says that one thing, He means it. When He says yes, He doesn't mean no. And we can't make things so just by saying they are. If we want to be in the truth, then we need to follow what God has said. I hope that this lesson was beneficial to you. I hope that you do search the Scriptures to find out if these things are so. And if you find them to be so, I encourage you to make the application that is necessary in your life. It may be that you have a comment or question on the things that you have heard here. You might put them in the comments of the video on Facebook Live. If you're not listening on Facebook Live, you may reach out to us and and look for our information and, and maybe come visit us. But whatever it may be, if you have a spiritual question, if you have some spiritual need that we can assist you with, if you want to study the Bible further, there's an open invitation for you. But like I said, I hope this was beneficial to you, and I hope you have a blessed rest of your night, and we will consider ourselves dismissed at this time. Thank you for your kind attention.